Hi, I'm Megan Flanders. Hi, I'm Karen Atkinson. Welcome back. So tell me about this new podcast. It's an exploration of a bunch of questions and loosely held opinions that I've amassed over the years working in commercial galleries and museums and nonprofit places and starting my own space. And all of it just feels kind of shitty. It doesn't ever seem like you get to the top or that you get basic answers to basic questions because you don't have enough money to ask those questions. You'll never get a seat at the table with Gagosian ever. He doesn't have to. You don't have enough collateral to ask him anything. Well, I guess that's assuming you would want to be at the table. I mean, it's a pretty nice table. It's like a Coco Bolo table, yo. It depends on who you talk to. (laughs) That table has legs. It does. They're called interns. (laughs) More than that. (laughs) I've had to make many a gallerist a complimentary cup of coffee and felt like a waitress instead of a fine art Mm -hmm. employee. I've had to ask interns to do deplorable things that I knew were illegal at the time and advised them personally, don't do this. Well, on the other hand, welcome to the art world. And it's gross. Sometimes. So I guess we'll also investigate not only that, but absolutely everything we can think of. I think the best thing is that you have thousands of questions, uh, both because you've been an active participant and uh, things and have gone... And because I don't know my ass from a bright rock about a lot of stuff. Well, that's okay. You've come to the right place. I have a ceramics think. degree. I know about <laughs> rocks. But yeah, if you don't know where you came from, you don't know what to look out for. You don't know where you're going. The best thing we can do is share the information freely to help empower other artists so they don't get fucked. Well, that is certainly uh, definitely an option. One of the reasons we're going to go back and look at things is to correlate what's currently happening in the art world and things that have happened in the past and how perhaps they have not changed all that much. Yes. Um, And, but we can highlight those things that have as well. So it's a connection to history that I think is interesting and important. I think a lot of people think that the art world is the way it is until, you know, recently that somehow 10 years ago, it wasn't the same. And I think we could back a hundred years and find out that there are very similar things currently going on, and that's actually useful. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we'll be thwarted at every turn, I'm sure. But on the other hand, you know, um, what I like about what we're doing is we're asking everybody. We're not just going to the sort of top people and saying, oh, well, you know, you're a viable part of blank, blank. But, you know, interviewing somebody who works in the gallery as an intern is going to be equally as interesting. Oh, my God. The guy that owns the cafe at Bergamot has the best stories. Oh, I bet. Yeah. That would be an interesting one. He's awesome, and he makes great food. We should do that. Yep. Because that's a really interesting perspective of somebody outside of. There's so many strategies. Yeah. So at the break of the first half, Mm -hmm. do you remember how you end that? Her husband died. Okay. Yeah, her husband died. He was mucho oppressive, but kind of supportive. Financially, anyway. Yeah, it sounds like it. Like, she didn't have to pay for anything, which is cool, but it's also a different time than when your husband was expected to. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, got to go to Europe two or three times. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I think the first half of her story is kind of normal for that period of time. This is this is still Stieglitz picked her up before this, right? Right. So it started. Yeah. The back and forth has started. Yeah. I mean, their back and forth has started. There's some academic swaying that says that she had this girlish crush, and there's some of it that says she didn't. And I tend to believe that she was otherwise a really upstanding lady and very formal and like, you know, 12, 13 years older than everybody else involved kind of age can put a perspective on it that isn't quite as gossip friendly. Right. And it seems weird that it's like, she's, you know, this wonderful person, but don't forget, she may have had a girlish crush. She may have had flirtations. They don't say that about the guys. No, of course not. We've never read that in any document so far. No. So there's speculation on many areas of her life already. Sure. Stieglitz loves her work because he can sell it. Yep. Uh, Stieglitz doesn't really believe in, quote, commercialism. But he believes in cashing them checks. Absolutely. So this is interesting. This is another thing that comes up all the time. It's like we have somebody, and this is particularly in the early gallery days where artists somehow had a commercial gallery but weren't commercial. So there was like the artist artist and then there were people who were trying to make a living, um, you know, doing more graphic design stuff, which was called commercial. Now what's so interesting is that those those lines have sort of blurred everywhere. But the idea that she needed to sell to make money to support her family was an interesting thing because Stieglitz, you know, supposedly wasn't really interested in the commercialism of the artwork, but yet. He always sold her work. And he was living off of his wife's money. She came from money. He didn't ever really have to be the sole supporter at that period in his life. Uh, So, yeah, I also wouldn't understand what that feels like and just be like, no, I have all these idealistic art school kid thoughts. I mean... She's got to be looking at him and going like, you know I could like ground you, right? (laughs) maybe I think what's interesting is that that schism starts to happen between them wherein uh you know she's she's struggling to be an artist and a photographer at a time when very few women um were involved at all she's interested in selling her work as well as her work having content and meaning Stieglitz has another different kind of conceptual idea of an art practice And I think that's interesting because those things start to push and pull against each other. And I think that's not different than what's happening now. Whereas, you know, an artist gets a gallery that sells, which is commercial on some level. Um, But yet at the same time, they're told in art school something completely different, right? Like you can't be a commercial artist, but you can sell your work through a gallery. (laughs) So again, these things have been around for a long ass time. Yep. And she's calling herself a professional photographer, but can't afford to keep her family together. Right. And, but know? she does start a photography studio. She does. It does really well, but she's still... Yeah. Death is never cheap. Mm-hmm. And 
losing her husband as much of a pain of an ass as he was. <laughs> too many rules. Mm. <laughs> Way too many rules. <laughs> Same. So ultimately, though, I don't know if this ever happened during her lifetime, but she's considered one of the foremost female photographers. I don't hear her name very often, at least, you know, compared to other women at that time. But she was successful in a bunch of different ways. She managed to make a lot of work. The, her body of work is lots of images of women, children, and Native Americans or indigenous culture in America. And so she opened her own studio and it was successful. That was a major thing to do at the time. Sure. And she managed to continue to get her work sold through galleries and ended up having a really big exhibition is at what is now called the Brooklyn Museum. And that was a really big thing to happen to her during her career. So by all accounts, she was actually quite a successful photographer. Just desserts, though, that you work so long and so hard, and then you get this show and you die like a month before it opens. That's like a Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> Maybe, but that's also, uh, that's actually better at the time in which you didn't even know what your reputation was because you died before it became something. So at least she was able to see her own success and know that she had done something. Mm. I think there's some artists who die and never know anything, and they don't know that they're, that people actually have to study their name and memorize their birth date nowadays, which I would never want somebody to have to do that. I mean, that's sort of really strange. So now all these artists who didn't, really know during their lifetime now get studied and you have to memorize stuff for tests. And what an odd thing, actually. Her reputation, we have no idea what really happened a long time ago, but yet still people are writing about her possibly having a crush on a man and gallery dealer and all that stuff. So again, her reputation is made by those who came after, just like all of us. I think it's really great, though, that she saw her own success and saw things happening before she died, because that's really rare for an artist at that time. Even at this time, shoot. Absolutely. So none of us will ever, ever know what our reputation is after we're gone. Not really. No. Right? No, not unless the Ouija board works. No, yeah, that's true. What do you think? What issues come up in that story for you? Um, we hear about where her girls went, but not her son. And I went and did a whole bunch of research on what happened to her son. Because when she goes to Germany, um, the final time, she only takes the girls and pawns them off on in-laws. So I ended up looking up historical death records and enterprise and business and all kinds of stuff. And found out that he took over the dad's company for a while mm. and then relocated to Milwaukee, where they've got a bunch of descendants still today. Hmm. Interesting that they don't feature highly in the story. Mm -mm. There's just one son or there's two? One son and one two son daughters. And two daughters, right. Um, what do you think of uh, Stieglitz? He's a dick. 
I kind of thought you might say that. He reminds me of gallerists I know today mm-hmm. that'll tell you anything to your face to sell your work. Uh there's a lot of evidence that he was pulling some of the same dealer tactics then of like, oh, well, certain people get discounts because I just made it up in my head and it comes off of your end of the bargain. Uh, and it's going to take me a couple of months to pay you, but that's fine for me. So, right. And that that's a really old game. It sucks. There's no good way around it. You can't just show up, be like, where's my money? Um, rarely do they have it there mm-hmm. and they're certainly not going to give it to you. We'll just have to do an episode on all the, um, tricks that happen mm-hmm. in the gallery world, because I can't tell you how many I've heard. Um, and you know, we could do a whole episode on just that. Things oh, that have sure. been done to artists or <laughs> the way people operate or, the things that gallerists say to, you know, their artists about not getting paid. Um, it goes on and on a lot, which is really disturbing, actually. It's really kind of a sad situation. But that. it still works. It's still happening because it's successful. So why is it still successful? Because we just don't know enough about that to, like, cause a commotion? You mean it's successful in that an artist still survives and can make a living? No, successful? successful in that Stieglitz didn't go hungry. Well, of course, he he had, you know, he didn't... So the, the issue here isn't the gallery going hungry. The issue here is the artist going hungry. Sure, but the issue should be that the gallery did not pay the artist in an appropriate amount of time. Right, which, you know, uh, most people say that they don't have it. Yeah. Uh, and... Most of us know that that's not true. Um, we do know that there's galleries that are three years behind paying their artists. At least. And that, you know, so when you say it's successful, um, I think the manipulation of artists has been a success for galleries. Yeah, the shell game still continues. It still works right. now. It worked in 1890 and it works in 2017. So I think the only reason it works is that... Uh, artists don't feel that they have a choice that this is their livelihood and they have to do whatever comes down the pike. So artists have not sort of gathered together. I mean, they do constantly over and over again, um, at least since the early 1900s to try to change things or, but, uh, that 1% at the top is completely comfortable with the way that they are making billions and billions of dollars off of artists. So why is that going to change from there? It's not. So the gallery is not going to change the way they operate. They're not going to suddenly give good contracts to artists. Uh, They're not going to necessarily tell the artists the truth. Um, And so it was interesting when we were talking to Joe Lewis and, and you asked him about, well, what's the worst transaction he'd ever encountered said, well, yeah, I sold something for $6,000 and got like, you know, 450 out of it or something. Um, so again, I think that manipulation and not having things written down is, um, is a way to keep artists where they are. So the only way to change that is the artists. Um, I think artists are doing that to some extent, but I think most artists just like, 
if you teach at a school that doesn't have tenure, um, then you're actually much more vulnerable to what happens than if you're not. And I think the same thing happens with, you know, galleries is that the artists are completely vulnerable unless they have a lot of power. And it takes a lot for an artist to have a lot of power. When do you know you have the power? I think when you can actually maybe force your dealer to pay you, right? Because I think that from there, um, not being able to do that means you have no power whatsoever. So if you can at some point become well off enough that you can demand getting paid or you go somewhere else and you make a shitload of money, that dealer is probably going to work with you. So it's more faking it till we make it. Uh, I, you know, the thing is, is that less than 1% actually make it. So I don't know if faking it, uh, is the right way to think about that because you can tolerate it, which I think is different than faking it. <laughs> but the problem is, is that a, only a very small percentage of artists actually do have that power. That means most all artists don't. So, for instance, if you look at Canada, who 45, 50 years ago um, set up um, a situation where artists, the government mandated that artists get paid. Uh, never happened in this country, although many, many organizations have existed. Um, artists generally don't get paid for a lot of their work. So the newest incarnation of trying to get that to happen is wage which is a, a newish organization. Those organizations have existed on and off since the 1900s, but have never actually been able to take a, f a full foothold in that. And I think wages starting to, which is interesting, and we'll interview them at some point. Um, so again, what do you do when you don't have power? Arson. That's one answer. <laughs> Today's podcast is sponsored by Getting Your Shit Together. Just Inc. is a book, some software, and consultation services for artists who are trying to become a better business. Check them out today at gystink.com. You'll find free resources and lots of cool stuff to help get your art career back on track. So imagine if Gertrude had had some other alternatives, right? So you look back in the late um, 1800s, and there's hardly anything going on. There's very few opportunities for anybody to sell work. And galleries had been around, but there weren't a whole lot of them. Um, they were kind of opening up more and more. And But I think Stieglitz was particularly interesting because he was one of the few spaces. And also he was a particular kind of gallery that wasn't um, selling prints for your couch necessarily or um, you know, operating in a way that he actually considered the content of the work. So early gallerists often were actually in tune with artists and really chose them because their work was incredibly interesting to them. It wasn't just based on whether they could sell or not, like it is today, for the most part. Um, but it kind of was for him, though, because she was the one that brought in the money in his, his roster, well, yeah, I mean, I think that there's, there's, but, it, but he didn't only think about that. So he was, he was interested in movements and art and artists who were saying certain things. That's why he started the, um, you know, the 
the uh, the photo secessionist. The photo Yeah, he started that because that was a particular idea that that he had along with artists and was trying to, you know, create a movement. Now that movement might have been completely to sell work, right? You create a new movement and then you can get people. It's like, oh my God, here's a new thing. So I'm sure that it had something to do with that, but at least they were thinking about what was being made through that gallery. So on some level, it's like an early gallery where ideas were important, but at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean that commerce wasn't important because that clearly was important. Although, you know, interesting that, that Stiglitz had a commercial gallery but didn't really think that artists should make commercial work. So again, interesting kind of contradictions, even in the late 1800s. So we're really going to go interview Matt Gleason, huh? <laughs> no, we're going to make him come to us. <laughs> and now a sneak preview of what's to come in season one of How the Art World Works. Do you know the Chris Burden story of him copying another artist's work? No. Is it the coyote? No. There was a, a woman artist, Sheila de Brettville who did a public art project with all the different kinds of lights from the city of Los Angeles. It's still up. And basically, he did exactly the same thing, except for more of them. So very few people know about Sheila's work, and everybody knows about Chris's work. Is she still alive? Yes. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or however you get your podcasts. We can be found at artworldpodcast.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Until then, amigos, be nice to the interns. Go make good art.